Okay. So welcome to another episode of the Sunny VK Show. And uh, again, we are having um, a well-known and uh, exciting uh, Swedish feminist, uh, Kaisa. And you're going to be here talking to me um, about, well, we're going to just talk about well, we're, uh, the, the continuation of the war on Palestine, uh, what's happening there, um, the case with uh, South Africa taking Israel to court. I think that's very interesting. You wrote a really good article about that. And um, Thank Hamas. you. Yes, that was a very good article. Um, before I get into topics here, huh? I know. We'll try to we'll we'll try best to cover it. Um, but the honest truth is you're one of the most outspoken people in Sweden right now on this topic. I feel like that's that's really important. A lot of people are taking the liberal line or very scared to speak out. Um, but you're very you stick to your morals and I appreciate all the things that you write and say. Um, but just to preface what's going on, we it's uh, I guess 101 days into the war um, on Palestine. There's over 20,000 Palestinians dead. Um, the numbers are obviously more if we think about the people trapped under the rubble. And 70% of those that are killed are women and children. We have countless thousands that are maimed, that are missing limbs, particularly children. It's a really... It's it's a really horrible situation. A lot of this is being said. Uh, people can find out all of these atrocities that are happening online when South Africa took Israel um, to to the international criminal uh, justice uh, court. Not court. Not a court. There's a difference. Yeah, it wasn't the criminal justice court. It was just the justice court. The court it's of justice. The justice court. Because criminal. The yeah. Criminal so there's two can... now, The ICC hasn't taken up the case yet, which no. we're all disappointed. What what's the difference though? The ICJ and the ICC for anyone who's listening, what would you say is the difference? Well, I would say like none of them really has the power to stop anything, but of course uh, a verdict in the ICC would uh, mean a lot more. Um, the thing is though that the ICC has tended to focus on cases of African leaders mostly, mm -hmm. um, which is extremely disappointing. Um, the U.S., for example, is not a member of the ICC. And has declared that, you know, if anybody would take a U.S. leader to court to the ICC uh, for any war crimes, they're going to actively try to prohibit that. They're going to try to stop that person from from being sentenced there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it comes to the ICJ, which is the case now, I think it's very interesting that it's South Africa out of all countries that are taking Israel to court over over genocide. And I agree with um, their application. I think what's going on is a genocide. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've been a member of or been active in the movement um, for Palestinian freedom since 15, 20 years. And we've always been wary of using the term genocide. I don't think it's a term that should be used lightly. You know, genocide actually has certain definitions to it. You know, genocide doesn't just mean that you're killing people. You know, lately there's been this trend in watering down the term and, you know, using genocide for anything. You know, even uh, the Russia-Ukraine war has been has been denoted genocide by some people you know, and I think, you know, we need to be careful when using that word. But here, looking at the evidence, I think it's very clear that what's going on is genocide, especially because when it comes to the definition of genocide, this is a term that was um, coined after the Second World War by a Jewish, uh, Polish uh, lawyer. And uh, the, the, the central concept here is intent. You know, is there intent? You know, are people being killed? Uh, just because they're members of a certain ethnic group and is there an intent to do so? And here, what they're looking at in this trial 
are uh, statements by the Israeli ministers, prime minister, uh, military leaders, where it's very clear that they have an intent of erasing the Palestinian population of mm -hmm. Gaza. Mm -hmm. And so you wrote an article about why this is, this is very significant that South Africa took Israel to to court on this on this issue and it's significant to everybody like there's millions rallying behind it like i think it was really it was it was a beacon of hope even though we can get into how toothless i think these organizations are um these international bodies in terms of delivering something but um and maybe you might agree or disagree but like i think for for in that moment it was a beacon of hope that south africa was doing that because it's clear you know, wh why? Like, this is a country that was subjected, the Black Indigenous population subjected to, you know, brutal colonial, the colonial project, to occupation, to a brutal apartheid system. And so they kind of become this big brother or sister to the Palestinians, and they take them forward. But you also mentioned kind of a shifting global kind of power play here. And if you can go into that, what that means for the for, I guess, for world politics, actually. So you can't crush colonialism in a courthouse in The Hague. Mm. You know, this verdict, whatever it will be, is not going to end the outcome of the world. But what it means is symbolic. It's very highly symbolic. What it means here is that the West is morally bankrupt. Mm. Because the West, um, meaning by the West, the imperialist, advanced capitalist nations, um, as we all know, um, the real motive behind uh, waging wars and subjugating countries is economic. But the justifications that they use are moral. You know, we want to spread democracy. We love human rights. We love peace. We don't want to kill people. It's the others that kill people, right? Yeah. So in that context, it's highly symbolic that while we have the most lethal war in 20 years, we have a war that's way more brutal and has killed way more civilians than the Ukraine-Russia war. You know, the Ukraine-Russia war now, um, it's been um, almost two years, is it? Mm -hmm. And um, 545 children have died, have been killed in that war. Mm -hmm. Now, Israel, as you mentioned, 100 days of war have killed 10,000 children. Mm -hmm. The median age of the person who's been killed in Gaza from Israeli bombardments is five years old, right? And here we have the Western world, the imperialist nations, not only being silent about this, but actively participating in this, encouraging, sending weapons, defending it, saying that Israel has the right to defend itself and so on. Whereas we have a nation that has been subject to apartheid and colonialism um, a nation that's actually hailed by all, South Africa, that mm -hmm. now takes up the moral responsibility of saying this needs to be stopped. And I don't think we can overestimate the repercussions in the world that the West has lost the moral leadership completely. And we're all seeing this. What will happen? What, are you, what do you expect the outcome to be? Like, I don't know, so I won't speculate, um, mm -hmm. but I think in case of a verdict, that might take several years because, you know, they're going to look into the evidence. It takes a long time, but yeah. they're going to have like an interimistic um, decision where they're going to urge Israel, uh, hopefully, uh, mm -hmm. to stop immediately the bombardment, to stop uh, prohibiting uh, food 
coming into Gaza. Right now, we heard that Israel is withholding uh, yeah. Palestinian tax money. Yeah. What they want to do is basically break the back of Hamas leadership, the political and military leadership in Gaza. So um, Israel basically um, administers the Palestinian tax money, which comes from the Palestinians, should go back to the Palestinians, but it goes through the hands of the Israelis. So Israel told the Palestinian Authority that uh, they were only going to give the money to the PA in the West Bank. They were not going to give it to Gaza, right? And yeah. the PA, thank God, said, no, we don't accept that. You have to give it to Gaza as well. Uh, mm -hmm. They have the right to that money. It's also their own money. So now Israel declared that they're going to freeze that money in Norway. And I just wrote an article in a Norwegian newspaper called Classic Kampen about why I think Norway, by accepting that money, is you know, contributing to genocide. Mm -hmm. Because genocide is not only killing people, it's actively starving people, uh, yeah. bombing hospitals, trying to make sure that uh, necessary medical or food supplies don't reach the people. And this is what's happening now with this money that's being withheld. So yeah. we see that the Western nations are, are participating in this in a lot of ways. And I think it would be theft criminal of Norway to accept that money, which is not theirs, which is not Israel's, which belongs to the people of Gaza, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think we're seeing here is like a big rift. It's like a continental uh, rift yeah. here. Um, we're seeing, again, the world um, for the first time, I think, since the Cold War is dividing up into two blocks. We have on one hand the Western imperialist bloc, and on the other hand, we have a kind of diverse bloc uh, led by the BRICS countries. And this is not an ideological bloc. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like during the Cold War that we have a socialist and capitalist bloc. Now we have a bloc, the BRICS countries, um, which basically consists of all types of different uh, political systems, economic systems, um, but they have in common that they don't belong to the leading imperialist Western capitalist nations. So they are uniting despite their differences. You know, if you look at, for example, Venezuela, Iran, I mean, yeah. they have nothing in common when it comes to political system, but geopolitically they're uniting. And more and more countries are seeing um, the advantage of being in that block. Mm. And hopefully uh, with time, uh, this block can uh, become even stronger and challenge the West, both economically and militarily. Mm -hmm. So, um, but for Palestine now, you know, we're in a hurry. We need somebody to do something right now. And, and to my great dismay, neither China nor Russia is doing anything. No. In terms of like, you know, when I ask like, what do you think will happen? I, I completely agree that like this facade of like liberal democracy, these values, the philosophies we all get taught in university or, you know, in high school, it's all being exposed. It's all falling apart. And if the ICJ doesn't prosecute Israel, I think for the millions that are like holding their breath, hoping for something, this is not like, it's not going to be, you know, Israel's issue. It's actually going to be the ICJ's issue that they are completely toothless and they couldn't do anything. And even if they did do something, wouldn't it then be passed on to the UN who then have these countries that sit there that have been vetoing all of the uh, ceasefires resolutions that have been going through? Right. What I think it would happen in case of a positive verdict um, that they would actually condemn Israel for genocide is that we would actually force our media to speak of it in terms of genocide, uh, which mm -hmm. is not happening right now. I mean, when I was on the radio and I mentioned genocide, um, the host got very uncomfortable and said, well, you know, genocide, I don't know about that. You know, that's a term and, you know, there are definitions and there are different opinions. But if The Hague were to decide that this is genocide, you know, we could actually... Um, force our media to use that term. What radio station was this? This was a Swedish public radio. And they're still not using the term genocide? No. Okay, well, 
I don't even know what to say to that. But um, I, I want to ask this. I want to comment on your what you just said before that. Um, I think that's very interesting when you talk about the two blocks and like it's kind of like the Cold War, but it's not like the Cold War because it was very ideological. We had anti-imperialists and then the colonial countries. And then you talk about these brick countries. Um, I do see that. I see when I'm looking at this situation and I have to read much more into it, I see like the U.S. losing like someone mentioned this uh, years ago, but it's the Roman empire, like these cracks that are happening and people are beginning. And so the Roman empire didn't just fall from external forces. It was inside cracks and, you know, turmoil as well. And it's like, they didn't have, they don't like the U S doesn't have the power that it used to have when it was, you know, during the cold war period. Like I think Biden has lost his mind. Like I think he thinks he's in the cold war period where he can just go bananas and just like, you know, starting another war in the Middle East when they were pulling out, when they don't have the resources for it, the bombing of Yemen. None of this makes sense to just regular people. So that being said, I want to ask you, though, where do the Arab countries stand when you're looking at this kind of divide globally? Because the Arab countries had not submitted anything to the ICJ, for example. The mm. Arab countries are not imposing severe sanctions on Israel when they play such a big role in terms of trade. But these same Arab countries are facing the wrath of their own people. And that's quite scary for these like autocratic regimes. So where do you see that like in terms of this world, this world picture that you have? So um, there is this book, uh, Hamas Contained, which I know you've read as well. And in that book, there is an analogy mm -hmm. that I find very apt. Um, and um, it's an analogy of um, a village where the men are out fighting a war and the women are left there. So what happens is the foreign army comes there and it starts raping the women. Um, yeah. One woman resists and she's successful. So she uh, ends up not being raped. When the other women find out that she resisted, and that she wasn't raped, um, they start feeling shame because they know that when the men come back, they're going to question the other women why they didn't resist. So they collectively decide to kill her so that nobody's going to find out that they didn't resist. And this mm -hmm. analogy explains the situation now in the Middle East. The woman who resisted is Palestine. And the women who didn't and decided to kill her are the other Arab countries who have decided to look away because they're ashamed mm -hmm. because they know they should be standing up for Palestine and they're not doing so. Yeah. So Palestine is like, well, the they all have their hands tied. To Sorry, go on. So, um, Palestine is their guilty conscience nagging at them prior to this war. Um, and we have to remember now that just because the world's eyes are on Palestine now, it doesn't mean that the killing uh, was not going on prior to October 7th. You know, there was a slow and quiet, unheard, unseen, constant killing of Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza, right? So the Arab countries, most of them, decided that uh, it was time to normalize relationships with Israel, which they have been doing. Um, I think this war is going to make it increasingly difficult for them to continue this normalization. And I think what's happening with this war is that, you know, all of a sudden Palestine has put itself on the world map and it's showing us something, you know, it's showing us how a people can resist. It's showing us a people that refuses to go out the back door of history, you know, a people that just don't want to die quietly and they're dying, mm -hmm. but they're dying with dignity. 
you know, and I think they're mm -hmm. examples to all of us, you know, because they have been so oppressed. And I want to make the analogy here again with South Africa, because I think, as I said, it's very symbolic that it's South Africa taking this case to court because South Africa knows what apartheid is like. But the, mm -hmm. Af the South African apartheid system was never genocidal. They never wanted to, the white people, uh, the Boers never wanted to get rid of the black African people. They just wanted them mm -hmm. to serve them, right? Mm -hmm. To say, yes, boss, and all that. But here we have something much more dangerous because we're dealing with a settler colonial regime that not only wants to subject uh, the oppressed people, the indigenous people, but they actually want to get rid of them. You know, they don't need them as workers. They can import workers from, you know, the Philippines or Thailand or wherever. So this is a lot more dangerous now, you know? And I think if you look at uh, the details of this oppression, you know, how uh, sadistic this oppression is um, and how the sadistic mentality pervades Israeli society, how in the face of these unspeakable atrocities, you have so many clips of Israelis mocking dying Palestinians, mocking the mourning mothers, you know? And, and I think despite all this, you know, the Palestinians are standing with their back straight and they are the, the biggest example of that is they're mm -hmm. refusing to leave Gaza. Everybody said, leave, you know, Israel said, leave all the yeah. other countries said, you should open humanitarian corridors so they can go. Nobody questioned, why are you bombing? But mm -hmm. they said, just let people leave while you're bombing. Right. Um, and yeah. Egypt said, okay, you can come, you know, but the people of Gaza said, no, we are not moving. This is our home. We've been through this before. We're going to stay. And I think that resistance and that, you know, moral example is an example to all of us. And I think we all need to question what are we doing right now in our lives? You know, yeah. how are we complying with oppression? Not only this war, but in general in our societies. That's the real reason why there is this fake moral outrage about October 7th which now the mm. whole of Western society has decided to subscribe to pretending that all of a sudden after 400,000 people killed in Yemen that nobody gave a fuck about, all of a sudden we're saying about 1,300 people, oh, we are so hurt, we feel so bad about this. And this again is imperialism's moral face that we're supposed to really believe that Joe Biden, that the prime minister of Sweden, that all the Western leaders seriously have empathy with the Israelis that were killed, you know? Yeah. When, when we know this is not so, when we know that if they had empathy with people who were killed, the world would look a lot different. Why would they have empathy with this particular group of people and nobody else? You know, this is not about anti-Semitism, you know, or, or, or feeling bad for Jewish people. This is about the shock that the empire received when they realized they are vulnerable because they did not expect mm -hmm. this attack. Nobody knew about it. No. It wasn't an inside job. Nobody had a clue. And if a people that's been subjected to so much oppression, blockades, siege, uh, deprivation of everything, can do something like that, you know, the empire is in danger. And that's why I think there is a double mentality here. I think the real shock that the Western world and that they're telling their mm -hmm. populations, us, that we have to feel. The real reason behind this shock is that the empire is in danger. And they're doing it by way of humanization. So 
let me ask you a question. Um, why is it that the vast majority of Israeli society do subscribe to this kind of awful kind of treatment of the Palestinians? There was a poll recently taken that 70% of Israelis would like further aggression and they, they feel like they need to do more. It more should be done in terms of bombing in, in the Gaza Strip. How do you get to that point? Like, how do you get to the point where the videos that we're talking about are honestly borderline psychotic? Like, it seems sick. Yeah. And then the rest of us that are watching it, it's such a disconnect. You know, even Haratz, the paper, is actually more honest with the losses of the Israeli side and Israeli IDF than, than a lot of these videos that are coming out. And we'd say, okay, there's some videos, there are only a few, but it's a vast majority of society. I don't know if you saw this, but... A high school teacher had posted some posted something sympathetic to Palestinians, and then the war that was happening, and he got booed by all of the high I school. I saw students. that. Yes, he came back to class, and yeah. they were all attacking him, even physically. Physically, and well, Noam mm -hmm. Chomsky actually said this, where he's like, "No, the you don't really see this anywhere else except for Israel, where the younger generation is actually more conservative than the older generation." And I think what he means is like, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you had sort of like the idea, the ideal of the kibbutz where it's like, you know, kind of labor Zionism, like the idea that we can build a social welfare state. And yes, well, you know, and labor Zionism was no friend of the Palestinians, but it was more of like, wasn't so aggressive. But this, we're seeing a very, I don't know, I'm shocked by it, the aggressiveness of it, of this younger generation. I don't know what you think about that, but how do you how do you how do you make how do you understand a society like that? Well, I think we're talking about generations of, you know, indoctrinated people. We're talking about an ideology, I mean Zionism, which is racist to the core, you know, which basically says that this yeah. land is for a certain group of people. You know, and that this group of people has rights that other people don't don't have. You know, and when you're brought up like that and you bring up your children like that, and that's what you hear in school and that's what you hear everywhere, you know, that, that's what's going to happen. You know, and I think if you look at, again, the analogy with South Africa, if you have a state whose foundations are racist, you know, this is in itself going to lead to uh, more extremism being born and people wanting it to go further. You know, you see it now in India, for example, with uh, Modi's... Yeah. Um, presidency and how how he kind of like opened pandora's box you know whereas india has tried to you know in the past keep different religions you know kind of like at you know the the conflict at bay you know trying to balance one another yeah. out don't use you know incendiary mm -hmm. language and now we have a president that's you know encouraging basically violence against muslims so and then of course what you're going to get you're going to get small paramilitary groups that think he's too mild and that want to go even further. Yeah. And then you're going to get groups that think they're too mild and want to go even further. You know, and, and that's happening in India now. It was happening in South Africa during apartheid. You know, there was lots of paramilitary groups like uh, this this legendary leader, Eugène Terreblanche, who was like, the apartheid regime is too mild. Um, yeah. and, and you're getting that in Israel now. And, and what you have there is the settlers. The settlers mm -hmm. have been armed now in the West Bank. You know, it's like that, it's like as if you give like a, a kind of right wing extremist hate group rifles just like that. Take it and kill people. You know, that's what's happening, you yeah. know, with total impunity. I mean, it very seldom happens that they're caught. Um, so what you see here is one thing leading to another where actually it's all been a kind of preparation for this genocide that we're seeing now where they're preparing, yeah. especially their own population for it to accept mm. this and to view. um 
the other people, the indigenous people, as, you know, not really human. And we're seeing it many times. We're having, um, we have quotes in the uh, ICJ uh, case where Israeli leaders yep. have said that Palestinians are subhuman, they're animals, they're not real people, they're the enemy. Analogies from the Bible with Amalek, you should kill every man, woman, child, and an and, and, and animal. Yep. I mean, you're absolutely right that it's it stems from the core, which is Zionism, which is racism. And you see it in different parts, like the BJP, Modi's party and its military wing or like its little outfit group, which is not little, it's huge, the RSS, that has its roots in Mussolini's fascist party. These have mm -hmm. deep roots in the Second World War and from um, the spread of Nazism. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's... I don't know. I just, the videos, they're definitely creating a lot of outrage and they're continuing. So I feel like they're very detached from the world outside, but let's get into Hamas because I think that's what we originally wanted to talk about. We both read um, a book called Hamas Contained by Tarek Bakani. Um, and the question of Hamas is, I think it's complicated and I think it deserves nuance um, and liberal media is not going to do that. So it's always a way to just label them as one thing. And I think mm -hmm. what that does is it gives a blank check to, to Israel and to the rest of like political parties backed behind Israel to do whatever they can in the name of defeating terrorism. But why is it that, so here's my question. So they label it as a terrorist group. But today, one of the recent polls is that 51% of respondents in the U.S. between 18 to 24 years old say that the October 7th attack, um, that Hamas's attack can be justified um, because of the grievances yeah, of the Palestinians. No shit, man. It's yeah. like TikTok generation, man. They're brought up by I Sean know. King. <laughs> <laughs> but the same poll says that they actually, yeah, they sympathize with Hamas as a as an organization, a resistance movement. And that is completely different from older people in the U.S. Like. Yeah. So, so my question is this: Is tell me what Hamas is according to you? Yeah. If you were to, if you no, were to, Americans, I think, really funny. I think Americans are so funny the way they like engage politically because they're either on one side or the other. You know, it's like first they're like U.S. Army go, then they're like no, actually I don't agree, and then it's like go Hamas. But you know, it's probably because they see, they just see anti-imperialism or and, and resistance movement within Hamas, right? But tell me, because this is, I heard one of your podcasts, I can actually play the clip, because I think this is interesting. And I want you to tell me about this when you're explaining Hamas to me. So here it goes. Ugh, this internet is. It was on last meal, I think. Om man tittar på vad Hamas är så är det ju faktiskt inte tio skäggiga killar i en källare som ni har nu till exempel. Utan Hamas är ju som Socialdemokraterna. Va? Ja. Nej, men de har en kvinnorganisation, de har en idrottsorganisation, de har en ungdomsorganisation, de har liksom typ ABF-folkets hus, allt det här. Alltså det här är en organisation som har förgreningar i hela samhället. De är framförallt en välgörenhetsorganisation. Varför tror du att de fick så stort stöd? Varför vann de valet? Nej, men kanske... Det var så sjukt korrupt. De slösade bort pengar som... Men inte lika mycket faktiskt. So I think that's interesting. I mean, like... Oh, God, uh, I hate my voice. Why did you subject me to this awful torture? No, I mean, well, you know, I think you sound good. You, you held yourself well. Now, I found that... Yeah, I was, yeah, that was from an article linked to Twitter, and then the comment section just exploded. But 
I think it's interesting, and I want to know why you do compare Hamas to social Democrats. And do you mean the social Democrats in Sweden, or do you just mean social Democratic Party? No, this is taken out of context. Like you have to think about that. This is like a discussion that went on for I think three and a half hours. Okay. okay. So why am I comparing uh, Hamas to the Social Democrats? Well, this is because uh, Israel has stated that its goal is to eradicate Hamas. And so does our media, mm. um, our prime minister, and, and most of the Western leaders now uh, subscribe yeah. to the goal that Hamas has to be eradicated. Now, my point is, um, what is Hamas? Like, how would you eradicate them? I mean, why did I say this thing? You're not like, they're not like 10 bearded guys in, in, in a cellar. You know, I mean, the thing is, when I'm saying that they have like a women's organization, um, sports organizations, youth organizations, who do you want to eradicate? Who do you mean you're going to take yeah. away? Because if you want right. to take Hamas away, if you want to take away all those sectors, you're talking about eradicating, you know, basically civil society. We're going to eradicate yeah. lots of, you know, normal Palestinians. And, and that's mm -hmm. what they're doing now. You know, so I think we need to be clear. Are they talking about the military wing? Are they talking about the political wing? Or are they talking about the whole damn movement? Because it's very big, you know. Yeah. Now, um, I think the biggest uh, misunderstanding about Hamas in, um, in Western media, uh, which actually has been spread by Israel, mm -hmm. is um, Hamas is ISIS. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think that plays into, like, uh, the average Western citizens' uh, lack of knowledge about anything that comes from the Muslim world. Um, so basically what Israel wants to do here is compare Hamas to like just, you know, the worst terrorist, um, you know, Muslim group that we can think of. Now, there is a main difference here. Um, Hamas only uh, does operations within what they call Palestine, meaning mm -hmm. Palestine and Israel. Hamas doesn't perform operations abroad. Hamas doesn't go around to like Belgium or France or wherever to blow things up. They've stated that repeatedly. So that's why I think it was uh, extremely interesting when, when, you know, Israel claimed that Hamas wanted to blow up the Israeli embassy in Stockholm, yeah. you know, and the Swedish media bought into that, which, you know, they could just look at, you know, what has Hamas done historically? You have even the secular resistance movement in, in Palestine has been committing um abroad like operations but hamas has never done that mm -hmm. you know so i think that's that's one important distinction to make i also think that even if hamas was started uh as more of a kind of religious organization uh which basically focused on the need to to return to the right path before um you know you 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 engage in resistance this changed later on yeah. So it has developed from a more kind of religiously oriented organization to a national liberation movement. And why that happened had to do with the Oslo Accord, the Oslo Agreement uh, in 93, where the PLO uh, laid down the weapons in exchange for a Palestinian state in the West Bank, Gaza, and the removal of settlers, mm -hmm. which didn't happen. It didn't happen. You know, they never got a state. Settlers mm -hmm. just became more and more. So, but they had laid down their weapons. So I think it's very clear that somebody needed to step up here because the conditions were still, you know, materially, um, were still going to, you know, uh, lead to some kind of resistance because mm -hmm. the conditions that led to the PLO existing in the first place were still there. Yeah. So 
I, I think that that is important to look at the trajectory of Hamas, like where it began in 1987 to up until 2017, like even charter changes and where they, you know, allocated, how they sort of evolved. And I think they did that to maintain popular opinion among Palestinians and not to isolate themselves internationally. But how I do grapple with this, like how as a leftist, I should feel about Hamas. I understand the resistance. I understand why that is. But is that the right way forward for the Palestinians? So we're talking about it. So just to preface that is like, you know, when the PLO came onto the scene, we are then still we're still in sort of this Cold War period where we have this divide right. between the imperialists and the anti-colonial struggle. And with the anti-colonial struggle comes the words of like, you know, the workers, liberation, you know, uh, a, a secular movement because they're looking to the Soviet Union or at least China in these or Mao's China in that case. Um, we're not in that world anymore. And so how should, you know, what is the way forward? Because I am, yeah, yeah. Like how do leftists feel about a movement that isn't really a workers movement? Like it could be anti-imperialist, but they're still sitting, they're still sort of functioning under the capitalist framework, you know? Well, it's not for you and I to decide, mm. you know, it's not for you and I to decide how the Palestinians are going to conduct their resistance or no other people for that matter, you know, and it's, it's not for you and I to moralize either, you know, things happen because they happen, you know, we can't decide how it's going to be. Um, you know, I think what happened happened for a reason, you know, when, when the Oslo Accords were drawn up, this was like two years after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, socialism yeah. was morally bankrupt at the time, you know, there was no way any resistance movement was going to take up socialism. Like everybody was leaving socialism, you know? Um, so what happened was worldwide religion became like the new thing. People turned to religion and, and, you know, the same thing happened there. That's just, you know, the big forces that were around at the time. Um, this was very natural. And, but I think, I think if you look at the development of Hamas, you know, I think you, you, you really see here that the most pressing issue for the Palestinians yeah. is the national liberation movement. You know, yeah. it's nothing else. It's not workers' rights. Man, in Gaza, everybody's unemployed almost. You know, they don't mm. have the right to import. They don't have the right to export anything. Israel is strangling their economy. Um, America is, is, is uh, banning PayPal so they can't, you know, send or receive money. Yeah. Um, Israel is handling their economy, their money, like the, the they don't even have a currency. So, I mean, to talk about a workers' movement there right now, uh, leading, it's just misplaced right now. It's not the issue, you know. Um, the main issue, the most pressing issue, as long as occupation lasts, is going to be national liberation. And, you know, people are going to vote for or support any group that is good at doing that. Hmm. And the rest, you know, it is the rest. I'm not saying the other issues are not important. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, right now, I mean, you can't really speak about anything else right now. I mean, I, I do agree. And like, it's not that it's not, it's definitely not up to, it's only up to the Palestinians to choose the leadership that they want to choose, but that can only truly uh, and fairly be done when an occupation is over. Because what you have is a population that's just, they, it, they're not even allowing for, because uh, well, when they were elected. Well, they had elections, you know, they had elections in 2006, um, January 25th, yeah. Hamas won. It was, you know what, it was uh, the freest elections that up until then had ever been held in the Arab world. There were no conditions, yeah. no preconditions at all. 
You know, mm. nobody said in order to, uh, to, to be a candidate, you have to believe this, you have to yeah. acknowledge the state of Israel. No, it was just like, these are the elections. Anybody, you know, who wants to, to run can run. And so the U S and Israel, why did they like they decide to, to hold elections? Mm. The U S and Israel decided to hold elections because they were sure as was everybody else, including Hamas, everybody was sure that, you know, Mahmoud Abbas and, and his fraction, the Fatah would win. And yeah. You know, they'd already started negotiating with him. So they knew that in him, they had kind of like an ally, you know, he, yeah. he was going to keep resistance down, you know, he was going to be like their, uh, uh, the, the, their arm in a sense. So, and, and people knew that too. So Hamas campaigned on the parole change and reform. They mm -hmm. won much to their own surprise. They weren't ready for that. They were thinking maybe to form like a national unity government and look, now they had all the power. Now what happened was, um, the Palestinian Authority refused to hand over power to Hamas. So there was an internal struggle there, an internal uh, conflict. And Hamas had to like just, you know, take the reins and say, you know, we won the elections. So but um, of course, the U.S., Israel and, and, and the Palestinian Authority did not accept that. So they kept ruling in the West Bank. But what I meant is like, um, did they not interfere, though, the U.S. and Israel interfere after Hamas had won? So they tried oh, to. Yeah, they've been trying to do all sorts yeah. of things, you know, arrest them, kill yeah. them, um, go around the world and try to and send Mossad on them. You know, they've been putting them on terrorist lists so they can't. And also, you the know, civil war that erupted between Hamas and Fatah. They helped mm -hmm. facilitate that. So there, though, there was that was a free election, and uh, they won rightly so. Um, what I'm saying is, is like it's almost impossible to have like a flourishing democracy where you could have, you know, the Palestinians could choose their leadership freely without this interference. It seems to constantly be an interference, even like the blockade after the blockade was cemented right after Hamas had won. Isn't that correct? It's just a way to punish the people. Yeah. Well, basically there was already the plan that Israel was going to withdraw from Gaza. Uh, mm -hmm. So they weren't going to occupy, but they were going to uh, instead impose a blockade, you know, land, air and sea which is, you know, different, but equally oppressive in some ways. Although, of course, you know, the people of Gaza have a freedom that I think the people of the West Bank don't have because, you know, yeah. they, they're living with themselves. They don't have checkpoints all the time. But on the other hand, they're subjected to constant bombardments, mass murder and genocide. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have these discussions and you're on these panels or like talk show radios, like and then they bring up these questions of like, well, what about Hamas and, and the woman's question? Or what about Hamas and, you know, gay and the gay rights situation? Or what about the suicide bombings? Like when well, these are like three different issues, but I know, but yeah, of, if you were to, what do you say to that as? Yeah, I'm not saying I endorse like all their politics or say that I agree with them or anything, you know, yeah. I'm just saying like, you know, right now. Um, the most important issue is national liberation, and and that's what they're fighting for. Oh, I think you disappeared. Right here. Okay, there you are. Yeah. Again. Yeah. So when it comes to the suicide bombings, why did they start doing that? Now you have to remind yourself that I'm not condoning or condemning anything. I'm no, analyzing. No, no, no. Also, yeah. So that, that's that's my starting point. Like I try to explain. Yeah. I read a lot. I've read several books on the history of Hamas. I'm trying to explain. What I've read, what my analysis is of why things happen. I'm not saying, oh, this is good or this is bad, right? So why did they start with suicide bombings? You know, suicide bombings is the poorest of weapons. It's the poor man's weapon. They have said, reiterated several times, you know, 
of course we would like to have all the weapons that Israel has, right? Mm-hmm. You know, then they could target the army directly, you know, but that's really hard, you know. I mean, anybody who uses the terms which are often heard, you know, in, in, in this debate about barbaric, um, primitive, and so on, you know, about the Hamas attacks, you know, should be arguing that Hamas or any Palestinian group should receive all the weapons that the West and Israel has, the F-16, the F-15, the Apache helicopters, the white phosphorus, these so-called civilized weapons, you know? And then we'll see if we're going to have, you know, a more honest war, army to army. Suicide bombings is what you do when that's all you can do, when you don't have anything else. The reason why Hamas started this, according to their own um, documents, uh, what they say is um, they offered Israel a truce. If you stop killing our civilians, we'll stop killing yours. So Israel was not interested in that. And they said, okay, so for every person that you kill from us, we're going to kill one from you guys. You know, that's the logic behind it. Mm-hmm. Israel has the capacity to stop these bombings if it would stop killing Palestinian civilians. Now, mind you, you always in this discussion have to keep the perspective that we're dealing with an occupier and an occupied. You know, we're not dealing with two armies that are just confronting each other in some neutral space. You know, we're, we're dealing with a big military power. Yeah. And then we're dealing with an oppressed indigenous people, basically, that are using the means that they have. Yeah. I mean... So, uh, yeah, when it comes to other issues, like the women question, the mm-hmm. gay question, and so on, I mean, these are issues that, of course, you can discuss, you can criticize, you can do all that, but I think not in this context. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not relevant to this context. I think it, the discussion is being brought up and it's being militarized because of some type of Israeli Hasbara propaganda. Yeah. Um, which, which you know, it's one of the talking points. Um, we had an article in our magazine, Parabol, mm. about Hasbara. And this is an Israeli term for, you know, um, basically propaganda. Yeah. Um, and they make brochures and they invite people from the U.S. and other countries just to, you know, get free trips. You learn about Israel so you know what to say when you end up in discussions. And one of these talking points um, is uh, women uh, have rights in Israel and not in Gaza. Yeah. Um, in Gaza, you cannot wear a bikini. Um, in Gaza, you can't be gay and things like that. Mm. And I think, sure, you know, let's discuss that. But then let's discuss like the Ali of the West, number one, Saudi Arabia. Can you do all these things there? Yeah. You know, or are we just going to criticize Palestine for this? Because this becomes, becomes kind of dishonest, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. And, I agree. And, yeah. I um, mean, I've, I've talked to people like women from Gaza who say that, you know, we have a lot of criticism of Hamas. Of yeah. these things, especially, you know, um, but now when there's a current war, we're all behind them. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. I'm just interested in how you debate this, um, because as I learn more and more, like I had um, an author of a book she wrote about female Tamil tigers, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the female wing. And we talked about this. And, you know, there was so much criticism about women being involved in this like military movement. And, but it wasn't like, there's so many ways that that conversation had gone where it's like, are these women even free? Like, you know, they're being oppressed by the tigers. It's like, for the first time we were talking and then the author was saying, um, she's like, well, for the first time, these women could fight caste and patriarchy. They could, they can actually be free. They can be involved in a movement that put national liberation. I mean, that is the most important freedom that they were fighting for because once you have that then you have security to be who you want to be 
and then fight for other things as well. And we did discuss that about suicide bombings, which is a poor man's weapon, because the most suicide bombings that actually happened was not from Hamas, or I don't think from any other Islamist group, but it's actually from the Tigers from a certain period from the 90s to the 2000s. And it was a weapon of the poor. And many people took that up because they had nowhere, no way other to like beat a huge oppressive regime. Um, So that being said, I won't, there's, I also have this question about like, it's not a question, but it's, um, it's just interesting because we're now back at this point where we even have to define what resistance is and what's appropriate resistance. So this has now ignited this conversation of like, well, that wasn't the right thing to do, you know, because we're talking about what kind of resistance, suicide bombing or, you know, breaking the fence or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of like South Africa. And I wanted to ask you that question where it's like people seem to have forgotten. They just think apartheid fell like it, it existed and yeah, it was right. horrible and it just fell. No, they think Nelson Mandela just went to yeah. prison for nothing and waved a white flag. Then they let him out. And he's like, hey, hallelujah, I'll take over. You know, Nelson Mandela was the founder of MK, which was the military yeah. armed wing of ANC. He was the one that went to Palestine to talk to Yasser Arafat and the other people and told them, you know, um, try to be peaceful. If you mm-hmm. can't proceed, use force. Yeah, that was his recipe. You know, I don't know if you can think of a single colonized country that's become free by by you know, just peaceful resistance. I mean, it would be great if it was so, you know, but I think that's why you shouldn't colonize countries because, you know, the violence is going to hit you too. You can't exercise violence over a people, a native people during, you know, a certain amount of time if, you know, um, if you don't want to be harmed yourself because it is going to harm you. Yeah. You know, because these people got nowhere else to go. These people are from there. They're going to stay there. Of course, they're not going to like their situation. You know, you look at anything, you look at, you know, the Vietnamese against the French, uh, the Vietnamese against the Americans. Um, you look at the Kenyans against the yeah. British. Um, look at like the whole of Latin America against the Spanish. You know, how did they get free? You know, even so, even I mean, Americans. Again, in- I'm not condemning or condoning. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, this is how the world is. You colonize somebody, you're going to eat shit. I agree with you. No, I, I agree. Well, you think we're going to eat as much shit as the colonized people will. No. You know, I, and, I, and I don't think there's been any situation in which. The violence of the colonized has yeah. been greater than the violence of the colonizer. Mm. I don't think that's ever happened. No, and it's it's a way to demonize um, the colonized for yeah resisting and for standing up. I mean, even in the U.S., like think about how so when you like Martin Luther to Malcolm X to the Black Panthers, this is a trajectory of like you know nonviolence, sit-ins, boycotts. So like basically taking up arms and walking around to protect yourself against police brutality. All of it was demonized from the very beginning. In South Africa as well, I was reading like they had this nonviolence thing from the 50s, 60s. You had Sharpeville Massacre. And then Mandela sets up this military wing. Nobody wants to talk mm. about that, though. They just want to talk about yeah. just apartheid fell. Yeah, yeah. No, but what I think if, if you want to explain like the, the, the ferocity of Israel's response, you know, yeah. I think it's two things. Like, they have now a chance, like an opportunity to um just basically ethnically cleanse gaza and while they're at it they're going to continue with the west bank you know that was already their plan from the beginning you can read their document for like the greater israel and their plan that they laid out in the un of like the new middle east and you see like palestine is gone from the map it doesn't even exist so that was their plan from the beginning now they got a chance great but i also think you know this is a punishment for daring to stand up to them 
Yeah. You know? I don't think Israel gives a flying fuck about their civilians because, you know, what we've seen no. is they're even killing them themselves. They're yeah. going into Gaza. Their own hostages are walking around naked and waving white flags. Israeli yeah. army's shooting at them, killing them. You know, they don't care about the civilians. Who they really care about is their army. You know, if their army suffers a defeat, yeah. you know, that really hurts. Right. So I think, you know, this is the analogy of like, you know, that I'm not sure this analogy is apt to explain the whole situation, uh, but I think it's apt to explain the response of Israel. If you have an abused wife and she's been abused for 30 years, she's been spat at, she's been kicked at, you know, she's mm -hmm. been deprived of everything. She's been raped by her husband. He's belittling her every day. And finally, she says, I'm leaving. You know what happens? That's when he kills her. That's when he yep. kills her for trying to leave and trying to stand up to him. Uh, if he doesn't kill her, he's going to give her the most savage beating and punishment that she ever got. Why is that? Because he wants to teach her a lesson like, you just don't stand up to me, right? And I think this is what Israel is trying to do. They're trying to say, don't stand up to us. Like, this is a lesson for any future movement. They're thinking, once we get rid of Hamas, any future movement that is trying yeah. to stand up to us, you're going to remember this. And you're going to think, is it worth it? What did you win? Look at what you lost. Thousands and tens of thousands of people, whole families, generations. You know, does that mean, what is the lesson? Does that mean that resistance hmm. is futile? That we should never resist? That the yeah. woman should just live her whole life in abuse? You know, never leave because look, she might get killed. You know, does that mean that they should just, you know, not stand up? Like I said, leave history through the back door silently. What about, so we're ending, uh, we're coming to our hour here, but I want to ask two more questions. Like you posted on your Instagram and then I quickly looked it up because uh, it just came out recently, but Hamas has released their, their document. Like it's called Our Narrative, uh, what we carried out in the Alaska flood operation. If you were to comment on that, like yeah so this is very interesting i think everybody should go and download it which is basically mm -hmm. the, the the hamas perspective on what really happened on october 7th so i just tore right through it i was like this is mm -hmm. very interesting um basically it says a lot of things that we already know um it's confirming the fact that uh they didn't know about this rave party they had no idea it was going on their plan was not to attack that mm -hmm. at all their plan was to attack the military and take hostages they just stumble upon that rave and whatever happened, happened. So that was not their plan. Apparently the rave was going to be happening some other day. And it just, yeah. you know, happened to, to be, to be right there. They admit that there were some mistakes. They say, maybe there were some mistakes. Um, I think it's kind of cute. They say maybe there were some mistakes during like the whole chaotic situation. Mm -hmm. They're saying, um, they're also saying that according to them, uh, they didn't rape anybody. They're saying they behaved in a moral way through the whole time. They're saying this is unfounded. Uh, we try to behave morally um, to the hostages and to the civilians. They're saying that Israel has killed over 60 of the hostages through the bombing. Um, and um, and basically, they're also saying, and they're quoting different articles and different sources, that a lot of the people that were killed that day and that were attributed as dead is Israeli civilians, some of them are even Hamas people because the bodies mm -hmm. were burnt. And they're saying, who did it? The Israeli army. So some of the people who were killed are even our people. So, and the scale of that killing could only be done by an advanced army like theirs. So, um, and then also you know, reiterates like their talking points. They're saying like, okay, this is why we're fighting. We're fighting the occupation. You know, we won't fight until, you know, they, they don't use the word Israel. They use the word like Zionist entity. 
Yeah. Because they don't think Israel is as a legal, legal, legit, legitimate country as such. So, yeah, I think everybody should read it. And, you know, no matter what side you're on, just to hear their perspective, because we've been, you know, just hearing the other side up until now. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about uh, when I was preparing for this is like the Arab Spring. And I thought like, you know, when that happened, it was a real it was a real beacon of hope, you know, like, you know, from all these Arab countries from Tunisia to Egypt, this overthrowing of like very autocratic regimes, uh, military regimes. And there was like a people's movement. And I often think like if it, if it like, especially if it had succeeded, if there was like a leadership that sort of stepped in, that things would look very different. So what is it they like when we talk about Palestine, how important is the Arab region like or international solidarity to kind of have like a regional up? It sounds like a like, yeah, like a regional uprising again, because I don't think it can happen isolated um, Palestinian liberation. It has to happen mm -hmm. on an international basis. And the only closest example I can think of where that was a true possibility was the Arab Spring, where, you know, mm. So I don't know what you feel. Well, about I think Yemen is doing great right now. You know, yeah. Yemen <laughs> is basically costing the imperialist nations like millions and millions because they have to go through the whole African continent since they can't pass Yemen because they're like, as long as you guys are killing people in Palestine, we're not going to let you pass. They you didn't know, kill Joe one person. They didn't kill one person with their bombing. Yeah, they didn't kill one person. No, they're not interested in killing people. Yeah. You know, and I think it's so interesting that the Western world generally has this perception of, you know, the Western world being so moral and the rest of the nations, you know, and peoples being so barbaric when we see that, like, the top murderers in the world are the, you know, the colonialist, the imperialist nations. You know, yeah. they don't hesitate before they kill people, you know, and that's why we have to stop this system. So I think it's like, again, you know, this war is just showing that, you know, everybody's true face is really. Yep. It's exposing. No, it's like, yeah, it's like, man, who's standing up to these butchers? It's like, who would have thought, you know, Yemen and South Africa? Yeah. And we here in Scandinavia think like, ah, oh, you know, we're so different from the other nations. Like, you know, we're just on the side here a little bit. You know, we we're not as bad as as the U.S. or the U.K. or France. Like we never had colonies. I mean, look at us. Mm. We're not doing anything. If no, anything, we're, we're participating. And it's quite despicable. I so mean, I like, think it shows, like, you know, you have no excuse for not resisting. Right. And I think here in the West, what we can do, because we're the biggest consumers of Israeli stuff, Israeli weapons, um, yeah. you know, uh, tech products, um, fruit, uh, wines. We have to boycott everything. We have to make sure that they're not welcome, welcome in the Eurovision, that yeah. they're not welcome in the sports arrangements. You know, we have to make it as taboo as it was to buy South African products. You know, you have no excuse now. Like you can't go into the store and buy Israeli oranges. Like really now, if you go to the store and you see that they're there, anybody hears this, please just tell the person working there in a nice way. Like, you know, they're committing yeah. genocide. Please don't take these products into your store. Can you tell the manager? And I also think, you know, the resistance here, um, we need to step up a little bit. There needs to be a cultural you know, boycott. We've just been doing marches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think about a lot. We need to be more creative as well with resistance. We can't just do marches, you know? No. We need a cultural boycott. When South <laughs> Africa against us, that was South African apartheid. There was an international movement 
artists that weren't afraid yeah. to come out and speak in songs and festivals and whatever. And I think what's mm -hmm. happening here is it's really exposing, you know, kind of the cowardness of, you know, all these people in these industries. So whatever, it's the comedy industry, the art industry, this, the whatever movie industry. Um, and we need to yeah. be very fierce with that and have a cultural boycott where again, because I think that would make a difference. You know, it's like some people are like, oh, what difference would it make? No, it would make a difference because it's hitting imperialism at its core, knowing that we don't want to have these structures in place anymore in terms of like artistic realms as well. But yeah, well, I mean, there is a movement. I mean, the BDS movement, uh, boycott, divest, yeah. sanctions movement you know, that they're trying to outlaw in different places, I think in Germany or the, the States, you know, because yeah. why are they trying to outlaw that? Because that's really dangerous. You know, why are they hitting at Yemen so hard? Because this is really stopping, you know, world trade. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, economically it hurts. So, yeah, we need to have a cultural boycott, but we also need to, you know, hurt them where, where it really hurts, which is economically. Yeah. Well, no, and I think we can do that. We can do it. We need more voices. Um, and you're doing an amazing job. Like I'm, I'm honest, I'm being honest. I think you're one of the most, thanks for everything you're posting. Yeah. But you're one of the most outspoken people and you have a platform, Kaisa. And it's like, this is, it shows your courage because people are so afraid. They'll have like 5,000 followers and they won't even post anything. They're so afraid, but you've, You've just been very steadfast and you providing very good analysis. So I just wanted to get you on and ask you a ton of questions. Mm. But um, yeah, thank you. But you know what? You have to think of the long term perspective as well. You know, people are afraid now. But, you know, just look back, yeah. like look back at how they treated like Yasser Arafat. You know, he was the terrorist back then. You know, Israel mm -hmm. was like when Hamas came up, they were like, oh, yeah, this sounds cute. They're just a bunch of guys praying to God. Like, well, you know. We'll easing things up for them. We prefer them to these hardline, secular, guerrilla, socialist movements, you know. Yeah. I mean, yes, Arafat was like a, a name you couldn't pronounce in the West. And so was Nelson Mandela, you know. Exactly. Uh, Britain thought that he was like the worst terrorist, uh, communist aligned, you know. I mean, look at all these leaders that have been, you know, vilified. And I think, you know, I'm sure if we would have been talking about the ANC, Maybe you would have asked me about like how they look at women and how they look at this and how they look at that. You know, I mean, there's always yeah. something else yeah, to talk about. Something. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, um, history has its course, you know, oppression can't continue. No, it just it's can't. So and you know why it can't continue? Because there's like, there is a difference between the people that believe and the people that are, and the people that are always win. You know, the Palestinians, they don't have a choice. They're just there. They were just there. They live there. They don't have a choice. Yeah. You know, um, Zionism is, is a belief. So yeah. when you, and colonialism is a belief, but when you have people that just are, they're just always going to prevail, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you manage to exterminate all of them like they did in, in almost all of them in America, you know? So I think just like looking back, you know, what we're seeing is just a repetition of something that's been happening so many times. And we know that, you know, once liberation has been achieved, Everybody all of a sudden forgets all this terrorist labels, you know, and all yeah. the fear they had. And they pretend they always liked Nelson Mandela, you know, the right wing party in Sweden. It's like, oh, he's great, you know, stuff like that. But we know that's not true. So, you know, just stay cool, analyze things in a cool way. Just, you know, understand that this is just the same thing. You know, in 30 years, nobody's going to say that Hamas is terrorist. Well, hopefully. I mean, remember, do you remember when Nelson Mandela was in the carriage with the queen and they were like, you know, he was coming, I don't even know, going down Buckingham, whatever road. 
So maybe in 30 years is like yeah. the Hamas commander with like, I don't know, Prince William. <laughs> it's just, but yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised because it wouldn't be the first time somebody was labeled a terrorist wins the Nobel yeah. Peace Prize or, you know, it's accepted by the West. Often it's the total opposite. Remember like Robert Mugabe, who was like, you know, the West kind of liked him in the beginning, you know, they yeah. were like, and the white people in Zimbabwe, they were like, he wasn't as bad as we thought. We actually like him. He's encouraging us to, you know, continue with our farms. You know, he's a great guy. People liked him for a long time. And then when he was trying to nationalize or, or yeah. take over exactly. some of the land, he was vilified from one day to another. I think it was in the beginning of the year 2000, something like that. Mugabe was like, you know, equivalent to devil. Yeah. Right. So it goes back and forth. It's like Saddam Hussein, who was, you know, one day he's great. One day he's dead. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, though, because you said, like, you know, when you're talking about colonial history, I think one of the this is very different because we've moved past that colonial history after the Second World War, the Cold War, the colonies had gained independence. They were nations. Right. We're literally going back in time and we're seeing a rehashing of this colonial, this colonial settler project trying to realize itself to its fullest in a time mm -hmm. where we've moved beyond that. So that's why it's so yeah. visceral to the rest of us. We're like, hold on, like this is happening in real time, this expulsion mm -hmm. and this ethnic cleansing of people. And we could see it where before we didn't have all the documentation of, you know, previous movements. So I think that's what's so vile about this. It's like they're trying to do something where that history, that time is gone now. And that's why young people are really reacting. It's like you, that time is gone. Yeah, because imperialism, I mean, you're right. Israel is an anomaly in that sense because yeah. imperialism and exploitation nowadays happens kind of like, you know, uh, via Zoom or via email, you know, it doesn't happen yeah. like in, in person in the same way. It's not like that, you know, the capitalist nations actually go and establish themselves as like a people in another country saying like, oh, now this is our country. Like you guys can just disappear. Like those days, I mean, are gone. They've already established themselves everywhere they want to be. Now they can rule like, you know, from a distance. So you're right. It is an anomaly in a sense. And also I think what's so lethal is this combination of Israel being like a U.S. military base the greatest yeah. ally in the Middle East, um, and a settler colonial project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank and I you think so you know, a lot of people who say like, oh, sorry, I'm just going to say one more thing. A no, lot of people sorry, say like, oh, why do, you, why do you only care about Israel? Like, you should just care about what's happening in X part of the world. You know, it is because this, this thing is special. Exactly. Not only is it the most lethal conflict that we've seen in many, many years, and the one that's killing the most babies and children, but it's also the only remaining apartheid state in the world. We must not forget that, you know, this fight is extremely important, you know, and, uh, and that's why right now, like I've, since this started, I shifted focus. Like, this is what I'm doing now. All the yeah. other questions I was doing, like, you know, economic equality, women's issues, like trans issue, whatever. Yeah. That's going to have to wait. Like I'm doing this now, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's why I kind of don't like sometimes when people are trying to derail a conversation by saying, well, look at this other thing and look at this other thing. No, let's all do this now for a while. Like, please just give it your full attention for the yeah. time being. I mean, I, I, I think that that's why I'm saying your analysis is always really good and stuff that I read by you. But I will say this, though, like I've gotten that, too. Like, it's like, why not the other issues? And it's a way to also derail. But it's like, if they get away with this, this is what I think they will get away with anything. This is like the. This is at its core an, uh, an anti-imperialist, anti-colonial struggle to free Palestine. It's at its core a big knock in the chest to, you know, like all these Western democracies and all the, the, all the crimes that they've committed. And so that's what I think. Like, 
if but if they win, if they've tried, they'll get away with anything. And then the propaganda and so, yeah. but they're not. I think it's all falling apart, and it's the world opinion is changing, and we and the vast majority of the world is on on Palestine's side. It's just the the elite few that have the power mm-hmm. that are driving this home. So. That's why it's very, very important. But um, thank you so much, Kaisa. I have a little bit of a lag. That's why I was interrupting you a bit. So I didn't mean to be rude. It's just like there's a lag somewhere here. But thank you so much. I'm going to link your articles below. And um, I think you're the editor for Petabul, the paper. Okay, good. Yeah, it's actually not a paper. It's a website. But yeah, please read it. Um, Subscribe as well if you can. and uh yeah we have an event. when are you going to publish this actually um today this gonna i'm gonna have to cut oh, it and we have an event on um the 26th okay. of january uh, in stockholm if you want to come or if some somebody else listening to this wants to come uh parabolas is organizing an event called the talk back where um experts uh from universities from palestine and you know cultural workers doctors are going to contest some of the statements that have been around in the media about this conflict Okay, perfect. Um, if I will get your, I'll get that information through Instagram and then I'll link it there. 26, I'm going to be in London, but uh, the next time. I oh, definitely great. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care, Sunny. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with me and Kaisa, um, a prominent Swedish feminist, and us discussing Israel, Palestine, Hamas, South Africa. We covered a lot today. If you like the stuff that I do, um, please consider contributing to my Patreon, donating to me. It lets me stay on top of this. It lets me bring on more people to interview. It lets me stay current with the events to report to you. Um, But yeah, consider um, donating to my Patreon and thank you. 